Ash Olaf. Hi guys, welcome back to the symposium. I'm really happy to be starting a new series, um, one that I had the intention to do um, from the pod's inception, actually. And this is a market series about kind of market trends and how the pandemic has affected different facets of the financial world. Um, and therefore, I'm really delighted to be joined by two of my friends, uh, Alex and Peter. Both uh, both of them are incoming um, analysts at Bulge Bracket Investment Banks uh, next year. Um, so both of them are quite qualified to talk about um, kind of stuff we'll be going over. I think we'll have a kind of broad discussion at the start just about wider trends that we've seen from the pandemic and overall in 2020 in equities and debt or in M&A activity. Uh, before I ask uh, Alex and Pete to give um, a more specific deal that you think that they think is interesting that reflects um, um, something interesting um, uh, about a wider trend. So yeah, I mean, uh, Alex, how are you? Thank you for taking the time to uh, come on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, what are you gonna? What are you kind of roughly gonna talk about? Do you, are you aiming to talk about equities? Are you aiming to talk about M and A activity? Um, I suppose I'll just sort of, you know, like to talk about a few of the kind of wider macro ch- trends, probably mainly in the um, equities markets. That's what I'm more um, familiar with, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Cheers Thank you for on. Yeah, no worries. No, I mean, um, what have you kind of got an idea to talk about? So obviously Lexi feels like she's more up talking about equities. Um, are you more going to be about M&A activity? Yeah, I think I think differences in, in corporate strategy. There's some, some really interesting macro trends at the moment, but also um, there's a bit of a divergence geographically in energy markets uh, when it comes to strategy with renewables in mind. And uh, given the space I'm kind of in, that's that's my sort of area of intrigue at the moment. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Well, so then let's go for it then. So we've basically seen, I think, more widely across the pandemic, a massive desire for companies to kind of ensure that they have sufficient liquidity to ensure their balance sheets to keep functioning, um, chugging along. And we've actually seen, obviously, as you expect, any kind of downturn and upsurge in restructuring activity and the like um, as country as companies get uh, into insolvency. Um, Lexi, what are your kind of uh, main indications that you've seen across the uh, pandemic and after the pandemic, which might maybe have led to these factors or what, what really stands out to you more broadly? Um, so I think, yeah, I'd really like to kind of echo what's been said terms of um, capital raising activity in particular, at least that's what I'm most familiar with. Um, Within the uh, investment banking domain, uh, capital markets have been really um, shown an acceleration of activity, um, particularly in follow on offerings. So there's obviously been a sort of big um, downturn in initial public offerings uh, with the heightened market volatility. But with uh, sort of state mandated lockdowns across much of the developed world, a lot of companies are, of course, looking to raise capital and improve their uh, balance sheet positions. Um, So you've seen a lot of companies uh, tap into the markets through rights issues as well as accelerated book bills. There are two types of um, equity raises. Um, So essentially, rights issue allow um, a company to raise more um, capital. So some of the companies that are in more dire straits, such as Rolls-Royce, for example, have been doing rights issues over just your bog stand accelerated book build. Um, So in terms of the capital raising, most of them have been kind of primary by nature. So issuing new shares because that sort of feeds into the trends we're seeing in the wider pandemic of 
news being literally going from normal to nothing to uh, these lockdowns that we've been seeing. Um, so I think that that's the main trend. I mean, just talking more widely across equity markets, not just uh, capital raises. I think what's really been interesting is uh, obviously back in March, we had um, a big plunge in the stock markets, all the main indices, the FTSE, the NASDAQ, um, the Dow Jones. So all of the sort of main, main indices. Um, and alongside that there was a lot of volatility so the VIX in particular was very high um, but as uh, central banks from across the developed world have been pumping in liquidity um, into the markets uh, we've actually seen a sort of um, volatility, volatility for example actually falling um, and particularly in certain sectors uh, the financial markets seem particularly buoyant um, so it goes without saying that your high growth tech stocks have been doing particularly well. Um, Zoom being a, a classic example of that. I think it's actually got a, a price um, earnings ratio of something like 3.5K. So really, okay. really um, got the weight of the market behind mm. it. So I do think there's definitely a divergence in equities between your sort of laggard stocks um, and these high growth tech stocks. Um, so I suppose they're the sort of just because of the nature of the pandemic in that, for example, Netflix, we've seen their their results tail off slightly in this uh, last couple of months in the last month or so. But before that, obviously, with people locked at home, subscriber numbers increased. So their, their share price accordingly went up. Yeah, I mean, I do think there is pandemic factors obviously involved. So um, the shift to home wor working has obviously greatly benefited companies like Zoom, for example. Yeah. And obviously, as you mentioned, Netflix. But I think a lot of these uh, trends were kind of uh, emerging before the pandemic um, with these divergence between sort of laggard stocks and your high growth stocks as well. So, Peter, I mean, Lexi mentioned briefly there about a lot of volatility in the markets and a lot of people, even in just mainstream news, would have caught on to the West Texas Intermediate Oil um, price going down to zero, um, I think sometime in April from memory. Um, you said you want to talk a bit about energy. So how does that factor into your overall picture from the pandemic? Because the price has recovered slightly and there are these quite hilarious stories of people accidentally buying physical barrels of oil and having to <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you know, um, how does that factor into kind of what you've taken from the pandemic? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, it's really interesting because there's, there's been a real split uh, depending on uh, who you are and, and who runs your country uh, based on how bullish you are on oil. So um, if, we, if we look at uh, M&A, uh, we have a lot of uh, European oil majors, um, you know, pledging that they want to be carbon neutral by 2050 or um, pledging certain dollar amounts per year that they're going to invest in renewables. I know uh, BP and Shell have committed mm -hmm. billions, billions to um, transitioning their kind of energy portfolio. Uh, but if you look over in the US, in the past three months, we've had three massive um, like shale sector mergers or acquisitions, uh, you know, for huge amounts. I think it was, uh, there was ConocoPhillips uh, for Concho, which was 13 billion there was a uh, chevron for mobile energy which is about the same size yeah uh, and, uh, devon for wdx as well so you know it, it's almost like in america the the oil majors are thinking one thing that uh, oil is uh, here to stay and they want to produce as much as possible so they're gonna move in on on the companies who are kind of you know debt straddled and um you know go for some consolidation to drop the price of oil and mm. maybe increase their margin uh, whereas you've got you know players in Europe feeling the pressure from 
uh, you know, commodities traders and, and ESG investors um, and, and looking to build more wind and solar, which, which is, I think, is pretty interesting. I mean, you touched on the ESG there. I was going to mention it later, but we may as well go into it now. Um, for those who don't know, it's it's uh, investing or trying to divert capital flows into areas that are, you know, environmentally sustainable and good governance factors and socially um, beneficial. Um, do you see an uptake in ESG investing in the United States uh, coming out of the pandemic, even just from market factors? Because obviously we've seen a lot of focus along with the pandemic. We had the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement quite visibly um, after the murder of George Floyd. And um, as a result, you know, ESG investing actually came to the fore in the United States. Have you seen that? And if that has been the case, how do you think that will affect kind of energy uh, markets or the energy trends more broadly? Uh, I think with with energy, you can already see the, the transition towards renewables. You've got um, you know, the big four commodity trading houses uh, all pledging massive uh, amounts of money into renewables in the next next five years. I think one of them uh, was it, yeah, Mercuria. Uh, has, has uh, pledged uh, more than 50% of their investments in the next five years are exclusively in renewables projects, and you know they're traditionally an oil trading house. So um, I, I think I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, but yeah, I think ESG of, uh, ESG investing impacts oil uh, obviously, but it also impacts um, general corporate governance and diversity and inclusion. And we saw that with uh, BLM, with a lot of companies yeah. pledging massive amounts. I think JP Morgan have pledged uh, billions to. Um, furthering black leadership and involvement in corporate communities and leadership. Um, so I think that's I think that's a trend that's we're, we're going to see more and more as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Lexi, I mean, turning so combining ESG with, with capital markets, which I guess is your expertise, we've seen some um, you know, research or, or rather than the last year or so, we've seen innovations like EU green bonds um, and similar kind of uh, green finance initiatives that have been made to mainstream or make make ESG investing more accessible or or more widely um, used and and taken upon. Um, how have you seen those trends be affected by the pandemic, or have they not really been at all? Because we've seen a lot of you know green bonds being used to fund renewables, as Peter said, and that's the kind of pivot that we're seeing now away from traditional fossil fuels. Yeah. So. I mean, I think that definitely was a time where ESG investing was more of a kind of front and very much an image, very much kind of a sexy thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it is definitely moving more to the forefront, but I wouldn't necessarily see this as being associated with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, So just something that I kind of heard a lot about um, was actually an application that was being developed that enables ESG investing and actually for investors, asset managers, example, they can look at um, particular stocks in the portfolio and find uh, very quickly using this platform details about the ethics, uh, the environmental record, all sorts of things like that, the gender pay gap, for example, of all the different equities or other such asset classes they're investing in. So I think there's definitely been innovations in that domain, similar to what you were um, talking about. I mean, I sort of hesitate to say I'm particularly qualified on talking about ESG because it's not something I know a sort of great deal about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think it's coming becoming more and more um, prominent within, within finance and definitely um more of a concern to uh, investors, I think, particularly your large asset managers who have funds that are particularly focused on ESG. Mm. In any downturn, I mean, thank you for that. In any downturn, it's always interesting to see how the banks respond. Um, and Peter, uh, Barclays this week published some amazing figures that, that um, surprised everyone's expectations. Um, 
How do you see that as an indication? Do you see that as an indication of how banks are responding to this crisis? Because what we've seen is quite from an interesting, just quite interesting, is that um, although there's been a massive drop in M&A activity, revenue year on year has not dropped substantially or at all for some banks um, because of massive increase in underwriting fees and capital markets fees, etc. Um, how do you see this as demonstrating um, how banks have responded to this pandemic, especially maybe the Barclays example more specifically? I, I think something that's really interesting is uh, if we looked at, uh, you know, the response in 2008, 2009, yeah. the banks contracted liquidity enormously and the market suffered and there wasn't much of a public sector response compared with uh, what we see now. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think one of the really important talking points from the COVID crisis and the overall market response is that the private sector as well as the public sector have bolstered cash flow and, uh, you know, helped, helped to yeah. kind of prop up asset prices, which is, which is yeah. pretty interesting. Um, and yeah, with 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 banks' results, we saw it with Barclays, but we also saw it with uh, J.P. Morgan and uh, Goldman Sachs. Their um, their figures were very good because of a reduction in in uh, write downs for loans, but also um, uh, as you're saying, capital market fees. Mm -hmm. I think one of the one of the interesting uh, things to come out was um, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was a there's a letter written by the FCA and the Prudential Regulatory Authority to the CEOs of big banks. Um, mm -hmm about their practices on on uh, securing capital markets deals where they were sometimes writing exclusivity on future corporate finance deals um in, into the contracts for the corporate uh, for the yeah. for the debt issuances which which was a bit naughty i think <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's slightly exploited it's maybe slightly exploited if someone's a little bit yeah it's um almost trying to guarantee cash flow for the next few years but uh it, it's yeah i i think the banks have responded pretty well and hopefully they kind of uh, see their way out of it without damaging the economy too much by not being able to lend. But, you know, obviously they have to kind of look at, look at their own risk and, and <laughs> see what they're willing to take on themselves. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, Lex, we've seen, obviously we've seen reasonable year-on-year re um, -year revenue um, from banks due to the increase in capital markets, uh, fees, etc. But there is that, that, that big specter, that elephant in the room of loan losses on the horizon. How do you see that affecting banks? How do you see that affecting lending facilities in the near future? Well, I mean, speak, we've spoken a little bit about sort of JP Morgan and Barclays, both of them sort of being universal banks in the sense that they have the retail as well as the investment banking um, areas. So, I mean, they're obviously going to be affected more than the likes of uh, potentially more than the likes of kind of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley that don't have that sort of retail banking facility. But I do think in general, the banks have been pretty conservative in terms of factoring in the loan losses. Um, and perhaps they've been overly conservative and overly cautious after the experiences of 2008, uh, 2009, etc. Do you explain that so further? Because obviously um, the, a lot of public perception is that banks are you know, risk takers, they're damaging and saying that they're being overly cautious is quite an interesting perspective. No, well, I think in terms of they've made quite a lot of provisions on the balance sheet for these loan losses. So they've already um, taken a lot of uh, this into account in terms of their uh, figures that they've been releasing uh, in the results seasons. Um, but also in terms of the deals that they're uh, getting themselves involved with, they are being, you know, cautious to a, to a certain degree, particularly in underwriting. And they're not underwriting deals with significant risk. Um, it's definitely something that I picked up from my um, internship without going into too much detail there.
Mm-hmm. I mean, have, has the this proposed um, supposed reluctance to underwrite has that actually seen has that actually you know been a factor? Because obviously, as you said, otherwise there's been there's been reasonable capital market activity out of necessity. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it sort of it sort of depends. There there's sort of certain companies uh, that potentially are looking to do particularly large capital raises and potentially rights issues which are just traditionally seen as being more risky in terms of the fact that bank can end up with a lot of stock at the end that it can't get rid of. Um, so that would uh, obviously increase its risk uh, quite quite exponentially, to be honest. Um, so I do think there is um, a conservative attitude there um, in terms of the kind of deals they're looking to underwrite, um, particularly at the moment. Um, Pete, so moving away a bit from capital markets back to kind of M&A activity, we've obviously seen a large decline in M&A activity this year because of the pandemic. Um, hopefully in the next year or so it does pick up again. Where do you see, what do you think are some of the more interesting um, sectors um, that we'll see growth in? Because um, do you have an idea of a specific deal or a specific transaction that you think is quite indicative of where we've come and where we're going? Um, see, I'm not, I'm not really sure because... I had imagined that we'd see a massive increase in private equity deals uh, when when COVID initially hit, but then yeah. there was an issue with, uh, you know, a lot of PE houses came out and they thought assets weren't actually that cheaply priced um, because they'd been so overcooked before the before the crash. Um, so yeah, I think I think there will be an uptake in in PE. Uh, I'm not overly sure where it will be. Uh, I, I think there'll be some big investments in healthcare. Over the next few years, naturally, um, I think tech there'll probably be you know some more consolidation. Um, I I know that Google's got a got a few uh, legal problems in the in the US at the moment, but to be honest, mm-hmm. I just I just don't see uh, <laughs> I don't see them being taken down by anyone, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which is kind of an issue with the power of big tech. Um, yeah, where else do I see? I I, I think I think there'll be. Uh, a very active energy space. Um, I, I'm looking forward to seeing where where that goes. Uh, mm-hmm. There'll definitely be more consolidation in US shares. Mm-hmm. Um, so there'll be a lot more M&A. And I, I think you can actually kind of look to tech as a blueprint for what's going to happen in that field because you've got, you know, you had a very splintered um, industry and then a few big players buying up everyone. And yes. I think that's that's what's going to happen here. So um, you'll probably be left with, you know, Chevron and, and ExxonMobil. <laughs> That'll be it. <laughs> nice long-term perspective. Um, Lexi, I mean, Pete said there um, elo- very eloquently about how um, it's been quite surprising that private equity activity hasn't increased uh, massively in the pandemic, especially considering that um, they had a lot of dry powder kind of beforehand. Um, what do you think are some of the reasons for that? And do you what do you think are some of the bigger trends going forward in terms of M&A activity? Um, so, I mean, I think there's one sort of caveat that I'd like to add to some of the things that have been said. Obviously, we've talking, uh, sorry, we've spoken a lot about um, capital markets, um, but I think it's really important to be aware that a lot of the capital markets we activity that we've seen has very much been in the follow-on space. So we haven't seen that much in terms of initial public offerings. Mm-hmm. Um, largely due to sort of market volatility, um, and yeah, companies not really wanting to sort of um, expose themselves to that degree of uh, market risk, particularly at the moment. But I do think it's interesting looking at the kind of um, IPOs that we have seen. So we've seen a few tech IPOs in the US. Um, We saw Warner Music. We saw Palantir. I'm not entirely sure how that's pronounced, but we've seen NSR as well. So we've seen 
we've seen a few tech IPOs in the US space. And also we have the Huck Group in the UK, which I think was quite exciting. And hopefully that will um, trigger a, a kickoff more in the London Stock Exchange, given the size of this IPO. So I know that kind of went off tangent a little bit. Um, but I, I do think it's kind of important to make that um, distinction there between uh, the kind of capital market activity we've actually been seeing. Um, it hasn't been across all types of capital market activity. It's been very much in the capital raising uh, follow on space as opposed to the initial offerings. Um, so what was the the other part of the question that you were, that you were asking, Ash? Yeah, so it was mostly for so the first bit was up about the surprising lack of increase in private equity activity, and the other bit was just wider M and A trends going forward. Um, so I mean, it's not necessarily my um area of expertise, I wouldn't say, but um, I I do think there's a potential for um M and A activity, potentially more of the defensive uh, consolidation kind um Mm -hmm. sort of looking forward uh that's kind of what i'd say on that um in terms of uh private equity again i I don't necessarily feel particularly comfortable on commenting too much about that but um within equity capital markets you have sort of a private placement team um and i I do think they've been doing a fair few sort of funding rounds for um, companies and obviously this involves a lot of the time um secondary secondary offerings or primary offerings to private equity um so i mean i think i mean i can't really sort of comment on volumes or i anticipate about the future but i i do think that um yeah i don't think the private equity activity is entirely stalled mm-hmm. no, no that's fair enough i mean could you explain for those who don't know about the difference between defensive and perhaps offensive um a activity just point of clarification yeah in terms of defensive m a um you'd be looking at a company acquiring another company to prevent another company acquiring it that kind of thing um as opposed to your more um growth driven M&A activity um I think see more of the former and let's see just uh, finally before I move on to Peter then is there a specific kind of deal or IPO you mentioned the Huck group that you think is quite indicative of the trends that we've seen or or that we might see going forward Yes, I mean, I have sort of alluded to it um, in my sort of previous response, um, but it's quite interesting in terms of looking at the IPOs we have seen in the pandemic. I think Wall Street still very much has a monopoly on the tech IPOs, um, but I do think there was a tone of optimism in the fact we did see the Hutt IPO, which was of quite a large size. Um, one of the largest size we've seen on the London Stock Exchange for, for quite a while, actually. Um, so hopefully that will um, provide a bit more confidence for um, UK companies um, looking to go public. Um, no, I think an issue of tech, it would be quite interesting as well if developments in direct public offerings that we've seen in the New York Stock Exchange um, are you know, across the Atlantic can come here too, because that would seem like quite a popular route with um, tech companies specifically. Yeah, so I mean, you saw it first with Slack and their direct public offering. Um, but I do think new that... Now you can offer new shares without underwriters, should you want to. Yes, yes. I mean, I think at least for the moment, uh, IPOs will still be the favoured route for going public. But I do think yeah. there's an interesting trend there, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Peter, um, moving then, uh, feel free to talk about capital markets if you like. But more broadly then, what is your like prediction that you think is most likely to happen over the next year or so, year two years, just... On a terms of a wider trend, wider. Ooh, um, 
<laughs> I, th- I think I think there's a few. Uh, so you know, you asked you asked about a deal that's kind of indicative of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was this week, Iberdrola, um, Spain's uh, one of Spain's largest companies, uh, purchased PNM Resources in America for eight billion dollars. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're growing their presence out in the U.S. I think they're now the third largest utility there, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, and I think this is. Interesting because, um, you know, as well as people, people think about fossil fuel consumption, they automatically jump to oil. But, uh, you know, utility companies also use lots of fossil fuel. You have sort of coal production, uh, you know, like a lot of German companies use coal, uh, having moved away from nuclear power. Um, but Iberdrola, you know, they, they've got significant fossil fuel production. Uh, they want to be carbon free by 2040 and uh, carbon neutral by um 2050, which I would have to look into them as to why those are two different things and take a decade yeah. to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and they've also they've also pledged to spend uh, I think it's 10 billion euros a year on increasing their presence in in renewables. So I think that's kind of gonna you know when, when we see BP, Shell, Repsol, Total, uh, Equinor um, all committing billions and billions in in annual reports to uh, renewables in the future, I think that's the sort of deal that we're going to see. Um, do you think? Just out of interest, do you think that's motivated by kind of um, lower oil prices due to massive American shell production, or do you think it's genuinely because of a, a desire to, as in, as in, as you know, on one on the one hand, a, and a belief that fossil fuels might not be that profitable going forward, or do you think it's a genuine desire to um, genuinely pivot towards more sustainable sources of energy, or is it both? I think I think like everything, it boils down to profit. Um, you know, for the first time. You had, uh, I think it was wind production, wind power uh, was now cheaper than than using fossil yeah. fuels. Yeah. Um, solar power, you know, the, the, the cost cost of producing solar power has dropped enormously. You, you also have governments now prioritizing uh, grid power from, from renewables. So moving into renewables, if you have a coal plant, you risk investing massive amounts into an asset that you may not get a return on. Whereas if you invest loads into uh, wind turbines, wind farms, uh, you're definitely going to get a return. So that's that's one thing. I think also, you know, if you look at how executives are generally compensated, there's a lot mm-hmm. that links to their share price. So investors can actually have massive impacts on on um, the corporate strategy of companies. So you know, with the as we mentioned with ESG investment and you know, sort of the big four oil traders moving into renewables, I think that's another big driver. And then yeah, thirdly, I would say the oil price being so volatile and mm-hmm. you know, it did go negative briefly. Um, I, I think all, all of these are combining to kind of, uh, you know, go with the kind of moral and social arguments for for investing mm-hmm. and, and cleaning up our energy supply. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. And before we finish off, just my final question would just be around, you mentioned investors briefly. Um, what are some interesting things you've seen about kind of activist investing over the last year or so? Is it targeted in a particular location or sector? Where do you see that going? Because that's often, that, that often can be quite an interesting trend to look at. Yeah, I think I think activists will always be around, um, you know, for various reasons. Uh, you know, we have we have big hedge fund managers, so um, you've got like Bill, Bill Ackman taking um, activist stakes. Uh, you've got Edward Bremson taking a, an activist stake in, in Barclays, for example. Um, I think as as long as there's lots of people with lots of money behind them, you'll have people investing to serve their own selfish purposes. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it will be a continuation of the kind of pressures to make more money rather than any kind of social purpose. But I think there might be a slight uptake in 
people being activists for the sake of uh, applying social pressure. Mm-hmm. And Lexi, anything to add about activist investing or just anything else really before we finish? No, I, I wouldn't say that I do have anything to add there. I think I agree with what Peter has um, mentioned with regards to activist investing. Um, but I think I think more generally, I think something that I would like to add sort of looking forward, I think it will sort of be interesting to see how the rest of this year plays out, particularly in terms of the UK market. So, I mean, we talked a lot about divergences across sector, but I also think there's divergences across geography. So I think the US market in large part is outperforming the UK market at the moment. And I think it will be interesting to see what happens with regards to the presidential election, um, because I think it's hard to really get a gauge of what the market is um, pricing in in terms of the US election and what it kind of favours as the as the winner, whether it is Biden yeah, or Trump. Well, I mean, Peter, from your side, from your side, Peter, the US election could pose something interesting if if uh, fracking is if, if fossil fuel subsidies or fracking um, are, are quelled by Joe Biden. Yeah, massively. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing if there is sort of Green New Deal uh, in America as well as in Europe. Um, uh, time will tell, we'll see. But I, I think if Biden's going to get in, it, it will be a lot cleaner. Yeah, thank you so much for your for your time and um, for lending the time to describe these trends. Um, yeah, I hope we wish you best of luck in the near future, and hopefully we can make this relatively regular because interesting things are happening all the time. If we can make this kind of a monthly thing or whatever, that I think that would be really good. But yeah, Lexi, cheers. Thank you. Peter. Yeah, thanks. No worries. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye. The Symposium with Ash, 